See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk in, by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our place here in the community that you've given us. Uh, thank you for especially your word this evening. As we come to the end of the book of Galatians, this has been a really interesting um, thing to read. It's been, it's been convicting. It's been, um, it's been thought-provoking. It has been illuminating of your gospel uh, to myself, I know, and I pray it has been for these people. And I pray that tonight, as we look at kind of a summary of it, that we would see the cross for what it is and our motivations for what they are. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, yeah, these last verses of Galatians are summing up the book of Galatians. That uh, isn't too surprising, I suppose. There's some interesting details in this section. I will get into some of it. But the first is the way that it starts. It says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And some of, you know, the, the first thought you might have is like, he's saying that the book of Galatians was really long. Um, and, you know, look what a long book I just wrote you. Uh, that, is, that is not what he's saying. Interestingly, the, the most, well, the obvious thing that he's saying when you look at it in the original language is that the letter, the actual letters are just big. He wrote big letters. Um, and what this means is that Paul took over for his scribe and he hand wrote the end of the book. So he would have been dictating the book to somebody who was writing. And at this moment, he wanted it to be his handwriting. And apparently his handwriting was just physically bigger. Um, that, that seems to be the going thought, that it was large. And he was like, see, that's my handwriting. And some people will say he was emphasizing it. Others will say it's just scribes tended to write small and he wasn't a scribe. So that's not how he wrote. But this is this kind of postscript to the letter that he's dictated to somebody that he is now writing in his own hand. And so if you're, if you're ever getting something that's just direct, like this is right straight from the mind of Paul without the, the scribe's input at all, this is the moment. This is his summary, and it's kind of this very important thing. He wanted people to know, this is very personal, what I'm about to say right here. And so that's what's, that's what's happening. It's written by hand. It's written by Paul. And he also is again, and I feel like this has been a bit of a, a theme in the book of Galatians, but he, he uses some grotesque language, basically. And our English translation tames it way down, which is kind of uh, happens a lot. And it maybe it's perfect for, for October 31st. It's uh, 
it's just going to get real weird um, in here. It, it, it is. It's interesting. But I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I want to give you the background so you know why he's doing it. One of the issues behind this letter, and if you've been with us most of the year, I know you've heard a lot of circumcision, haven't you? Like, you, you never thought you'd spend a year, almost a year, <laughs> with this many mentions of this, of this concept. But one of the, the issues behind this letter is the fact, the fact that a group of people had come to the Galatian church. We were thinking they're from Jerusalem. Um, and they were offended that the non-Jewish Christians weren't getting circumcised. These are people that would have said that they were believers in Jesus, so that they're professing Christians, and, and maybe they were very well actually Christians. Um, but they are offended that the non-Jewish Christians weren't getting circumcised. And to us, this is surprising. It's, it's an issue that we in our day would not make a big deal out of, right? Um, and and it, it doesn't seem as huge. But to them, it was huge. It had deep significance. It was a symbol of their ethnic, religious, and political identity to be circumcised. Jewish people had been persecuted for being Jewish, and they had persevered through that persecution. And so this symbol was a dear symbol to them. Like, this is, this is one of the things that identifies us with one another. We have been through so much, right? Don't take this away. These Jewish Christians were also using the Bible. I've said this before, and this is where it can get a little, like, complicated. They, the Old Testament indeed commands circumcision. Um, it's a promise given to Abraham, their patriarch, and ours. And so they're, they're seeing it in the Bible and saying, you're supposed to do this. And they were, they were very, very convinced. And their argument was convincing because it came along with Bible verses. And they were able to persuade these young believers, or some of them, um, using the Bible. And then Paul comes back in and says, you should not get circumcised. And he makes an argument out of the Bible as well. And it becomes a divisive issue if you, if you think about it because they're thinking, which leaders do we listen to? Do we listen to the ones who are coming in and saying, look, the Bible says you need to be circumcised? Or do we listen to the one, Paul, who's saying, no, there was something that came before circumcision that was more important and now has taken the place of circumcision. Circumcision was just a shadow. Which one is it? And they, they needed to know. We studied the book of Galatians this year because back in 2020, leading into this year, we saw parallels in our day. We specifically chose it for our church and talking within kind of our cultural context because there are divisive issues in the church. And there are multiple sides in some cases of these issues arguing from the Bible, right? And we thought, though this is not the same issue, perhaps... If we talk about this in an extended way, it could give you tools to go out in the world and, and walk through similarly complicated stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't need to list out the stuff for you this year, but, you know, there's vaccines, race, policing, masks, the election, these kind of things where there's people in the church are on different ends of this stuff, right? And they, they have biblical arguments. And we thought, is there anything we can glean from the book of Galatians, to help you work through this. And I hope you've seen, um, on none of these things have I given you the vaccine talk or the race talk or the policing talk. We're giving you the, the talk that Paul gave them in Galatians, which has everything to do with the gospel. And so what do you do with that? Now, 
It's not, it doesn't mean you don't do anything, but it, it changes the conversation. Who do you listen to? What are the issues we should prioritize as Christians? How do we decide which, which issues uh, to deal with? So that's, what, that's why we've done this. That's why we walked into this. And Paul here concludes his argument in his own large handwriting, and he, and he sums it up, and he tells us what we really need to know. And of course, this wisdom still applies today. And I, and I hope that you see um, the, the, the main issues that he gets at here. I'm going to just speak of them very directly. So what's it about? Um, two things. The two big issues that Paul brings up as you're trying to work out where to stand on circumcision to the Galatians, and I would say with anything else, what's the motive of our hearts and what's the meaning of the cross? What's the motive of our hearts? What's the meaning of the cross? So again, I'll read Galatians uh, 6, starting with 11, just to kind of re-establish this in our minds. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, But even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. And there's so much going on in those statements. So much. Um, First off, and and I learned this uh, this this past week, digging deeper into this, uh, it first popped up in Craig Keener's commentary on Galatians, that this idea that those who want to make a good showing in the flesh or want to boast in your flesh, is this is a very tame wording of what Paul was trying to say. Here is likely what Paul was trying to say. Paul, now he's taken the, he's taken the pen, right? This is the picture he paints. The people who are here agitating the church, what they want to do with your circumcisions is they want to gather handfuls of foreskin and take them back to their people and display them to show them that they have been faithful. Ew. Gross. That's what he's getting at. That's the boasting. That's the good showing. And it is grotesque. And he says, and not only that, not only that, The reason they're doing it is to avoid persecution. And the way that they're avoiding persecution is by persecuting you. So they are going to persecute you. Take the foreskins of your flesh and go show them off as their spoils of battle. Now you have to realize Paul wrote this, you know, the book is to the Galatians, but Many of these people had been persuaded by these Jewish believers that they needed to be circumcised. Some of them had done it. Some of them were still on the fence. Some of them were definitely still in connection with the people he was arguing with. So this letter isn't just going to be read by the people who agree with him. It's going to be read by the people who don't. And he takes the pen and he doesn't dial it back. He goes, he states it in a a very strong way. It's almost like a war party. It's almost like scalping. He paints it as brutal, what they've done, right? And of course, you have to get in the minds of these 
Christians from Jerusalem or these, these other people who've come with these Old Testament verses. And, and we must admit, like this is a little speculative to do this, but let's try to get in their minds. They're arguing for things like the purity of the church. They are trying to teach from the Bible. They want to secure a future for their faith and their children and their faith. Um, they aren't, you know, prejudiced about the Galatians coming in, not in their, in their appraisal. They just want to make sure that the Galatians don't come in and do things different and undermine their heritage and everything that they'd been through as a people. Uh, they wanted to go back to their fellow church members in Jerusalem and let them know that they had been bold in their faith and faithful and that they'd convinced erring young believers to get back on track. When you hear it that way, that sounds fine, right? Like that I have felt every one of those impulses, right? And here comes the Apostle Paul, the most prolific leader in the church, former legalist now, and former Pharisee, actual inquisitor. I mean, the Apostle Paul actually killed people, okay? And he opposes them and paints their actions in the most grotesque strokes he could possibly paint them. What right does he have? Is this man going off the rails? That's, that might be what they're thinking, right? What is happening right now? Well, we addressed some of this earlier in the year, and I know we weren't all, all here at that time. But in Paul's most forceful moments of argumentation, he was calculated and reasoned. He had thought through, like, not only the words he used, but he had been very, even from a literary perspective, ingenious in his word. This was not an unhinged letter. This was a thought-out letter. This is not a zealot. This is an apostle in his element. And he's aiming for change, but his opponents would have felt very attacked by someone that they would have felt was very hypocritical, potentially. I think it's important to see this. Now, why would he do something like this? Why would he, why would he be so drastic? Why so drastic? When I was reading this, and I, I, word, I read the word grotesque in one of the, the commentaries, I actually had, it led me down this little trail and I found it, I hope it's helpful because the most grotesque author who is also, you know, has written from a, a perspective of faith and grace that I know of is Flannery O'Connor. And if you've read her work, you've seen two things. She utilizes the grotesque, but she is always driven by grace. She utilizes the grotesque, but she's always driven by grace. And I think the same is true of the Apostle Paul. Now, so, so I found this, so O'Connor one time did some explaining of this. She explained Southern fiction, which was her genre. And she talked about, I guess this is a pretty common thing. And she was working out for people, why? Why the freaks? Why the grotesque? Why do we need to do this? Listen to what she said. She said, whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some concept of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception 
of man is still, in the main, theological. I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid, afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. In any case, and this is the key part, when the freak can be sensed as a figure of our essential displacement, he attains some depth in our literature. What she's saying there, when we can read about a freak, when we can read about something grotesque and ridiculous and realize I could be substituted in for this, uh, that's the key. I have similar characteristics to this, then we can, we can relate and we can see. In other words, we need to see the possibility that we are turning or could turn into something grotesque to open ourselves to our need for redemption. And actually, O'Connor goes on to that. She says the aim of her writing, and a lot of Southern writers, is redemption. She said the reader of today looks for redemption, and rightly so, but what they've forgotten is the cost of it. The reader's sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether and so they have forgotten the price of restoration. Do you see what she's saying? In other words, when people have lost their sense of inner evil, they need to be awakened in order to see that they need redemption. And great literature invites us to see that we're in danger of being displaced by the inner freak or the ghost of ourselves And this matches more with what our Apostle Paul is doing. He is using something very grotesque, but his aim, his aim in all of this has been to draw us back to grace. Okay? Maybe this is what our Halloweens could be all about. I just want to throw this out for Christians. Maybe we could have this much depth and we're just like out there in like ghoul costumes and we're like, this is you, you know. You need Jesus. Anyway. Now, here's the, here's the trouble, though, we, we run into. Do you, do you see the possibility of that? The Apostle Paul is not just, he's not just angry and trying to make them feel terrible. He has woven imagery throughout the book of Galatians that is very, like, it is grotesque, but he's inviting and aiming for redemption. Now, here's what we, we run into, and I'm saying that Paul's conclusion is about the motives of our hearts. His grotesque painting of this divisive group of Christians is unmasking their true motives. Um, and and they, they may say, for example, that they're standing for persecuted people, but in fact, they are beginning to persecute people. They may say that they want their fellow believers to have a right standing before God, but in truth, These people are trying to be bold and committed and effective in ministry to be praised by others. And they claim spiritual motives, but their motives are truly worldly. Now, here's the trouble. We can always see this in others and not in ourselves. Right? Remember what our Lord Jesus taught us. Judge not that you not be judged. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek, or why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus wants us to minister to others. Jesus wants us to call out the good in others, right? But he, but he tells us there's an order to this. And where, where does it begin? The simplest inner motion of our hearts is to look at other people and see the grotesque, to see the freak that they could become. This is what we see. We see it in the news all the time. We see it in Twitter all the time. Pointing and, and, these, and, and you know, blowing up what people are doing. This is worse. This is terrible, right? We, that happens a lot. But we must begin by looking at ourselves. I think it's important to see this in Paul. Think about this. In his darkest caricatures of others, think about what, what he just said about these agitators of the Galatian church. They were, they were collecting foreskins to go show them off to others to boast about your flesh. Well, what did Paul admittedly, publicly admittedly do himself? He stacked corpses himself, right? And, and he has admitted it. I mean, he talks about what he, you know, that he is the most unworthy of apostles. The books of Luke and Acts, which are really a combination of, um, Luke-Acts letter that came from a, a physician named Luke. Luke was Paul's traveling companion. Paul signed off on this stuff. All the stories in there about who he was and what he had done, he had disseminated these stories. He has not hidden from the world that he piled corpses to show his righteousness. So in the darkest caricature is himself. And then imagine, you know, the, this grotesque image that Paul had, had stoned not only Stephen the deacon, but had requested the, the deaths of many others. And that day on the road to Nazareth, when Jesus comes to him, what did Jesus say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so what Paul has told us all is not only did I stone and kill and pile corpses, but every one of them that I killed and stoned, in them was Jesus Christ. And I have persecuted him. Paul, you see, levels no critique. He hasn't owned himself. This is how we know he's aiming for grace. Because if, he, if he, he's not throwing out a critique, he would not give to himself. And he, and he is offering grace to people who he isn't even describing in as serious as terms as he has described himself. When judgment's reserved for others, then we aim to show ourselves in the best possible light and we're moving away from grace and the cross. But when judgment can begin in the household of God or when it can begin with ourselves, then we can aim for grace. This is the lifelong fight of Christian discipleship. 
because it's the inner battle under every single one of our sins. We long for grace, but at our core, we resist it. We fear we aren't accepted, but we are addicted to the quest of acceptance by others outside of grace. And this can lead us to the ridiculous, into what Jesus was describing. Paul has described the grotesque. Jesus has described the ridiculous, walking around with planks in our eyes, trying to pick specks out of other people's eyes. This is what we do when we point at the sins of others and our own sins are glaring or grotesque and we are devolving into brutality ourselves as we point the finger at others. Doing what we might even believe to be Christian work at the expense of the souls of others, parading the flesh of others before other people is just mere trophies of our own righteousness. So the question always has to return to the motives of our hearts. As we extract planks from our eyes, then we can help with the specks of others. Perhaps we may even help describe them as their planks. So what does that have to do with the issues of our day? Well, why do you want to deal with the issues of our day? I'll put it back to you. Why are you engaging with the issues you do? When you get in the argument, what is the goal? When you inwardly stew, what is bothering you? I am asking myself these questions. The motive of our heart is the top priority. Do we want to keep ourselves from persecution? The agitators in the Galatian church did. Do we want to prove to others we're bold and faithful Christians? Or on the flip side, do we want to prove that we are non-judgmental, that we're not those jerks? Do we want to show other people that we have done things right? That we have saved people that we haven't been the ones that have caused people to become ex-evangelicals. Nobody wants to be the cause of that. Maybe we could parade all the people we have saved or sheltered from hell before the rest of the church so they could see how we're doing. Oh, oops. Or we could parade our positions on things before other believers so they could see that we are faithful and we have the right beliefs. I don't like this sermon because all those things happen to me all the time. That motive creeps in so stinking fast. I've told some of you before, we used to have confession before the sermon. I miss that. And here, it was really because I needed it really bad. Like, how many times I would get up here and stand right here and just be like, what are they thinking? What is my problem? This is where we return time and time again, that the motives of our heart, Jesus pushes for it, Paul pushes for it. He paints it in the most grotesque imagery so we can see we could go that direction. So what do we do? Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He ends this letter on a rock-solid foundation, the crux of the Christian faith, the cross. Our boast and our tool, our final tool for discerning our hearts. 
This is the second part, the meaning of the cross. Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul says, Unlike those who anchor their identity and hope in what they do, in their righteousness, their law adherence, unlike those who want to make an outward showing, who want others to accept them or be impressed, unlike them, I am boasting only in the cross, Paul says. For nearly 40-year-olds like me who grew up in Christian circles, one of the most famous applications of Galatians 6.14, this section, was by John Piper at Passion One Day 2000. Am I the only one who remembers this? Anybody? One. Okay, good. It's not repetitive. Um, John Piper at, at this passion event aimed at things like retirement goals and good jobs and comfort. He challenged, he was challenging college age people at the time like me to boast only in the cross. And he was saying, if, if there are things you are happy about, it's okay to be happy that you have friends and homes and pleasures. But if they are your ultimate boast, They are out of order. You must boast only in the cross and that God has secured himself for you and thereby given you gifts because of the cross. And I appreciate that, especially the idea for us Christians that our other boasts don't just all go away, but they have to be rightly ordered. And if you're you're a member, I could post it on, I could send it to anybody. I posted that on our Facebook page. I think it's an important sermon. It was very helpful. And so I'll just say, like, it, drawing from Piper, I'll say that it's not that you can't be happy about anything. It's not that you can't be proud that you've done a good job or got a new job or raised your family well, but it must be rightly ordered. But moving on from there, I have two big questions about this section at a cursory reading, and I think the answering those will get us the rest of the way home. Here's the questions. What does it mean the world has been crucified to me and I to the world? And if a new creation is all that counts, what does it mean to be a new creation? Answering those two questions is very important here. This is how Paul ends the whole letter to the Galatians. Here's here's what I think Paul means in light of the rest of this book and especially in light of what he's saying in this conclusion and summary of his letter. He says the Christian in a sense, has undergone an entire change of perspective, an entire reorientation of their life, and it all starts with the cross. Now, a cross is not something anyone in their day would boast about. We only do it, we only wear the jewelry because we're so detached from that time. I'm telling you. Um, Piper, actually, in that sermon, compared the cross to lynching. And that is a horrendous but excellent comparison because crosses weren't just meant to execute. Some people have said it's like boasting in the electric chair. Here's the difference. At the electric chair, you are alone in a room with your dignity, sort of. On a cross and in lynching, 
you are humiliated and dominated while you die. It was the ultimate sign of destruction and weakness. The Romans knew exactly what they were doing with crosses. That as you gasped for breath, as you bled to death, you hung utterly naked at the gate of the city so that everyone could look at how weak you were for hours until you died. It was not death merely by physical pain. It was an inner death combined with an exterior death. It was the death of your pride. It was a statement by Rome that you had nothing. They'd stripped you of it all. And it was to show other people not to mess with Rome, right? So who in their right mind would boast in a cross or lynching? Especially the cross of a good man. Especially the cross of someone who claimed to be God. When you think of the word boast, you, you boast in things you're proud of, right? Your achievements, your blessings, your best qualities, your best moments. Paul is saying, by the way, everyone does that. That's not the sign of a Christian. It doesn't prove anything about our hearts. The arrogant boast, the Bible says. The self-centered will boast. In fact, the self-centered, even if they're not boasting, will tear themselves up in despair because they are so disappointed with themselves. It's a form of boasting. It's saying, I am central. If I am a failure, then nothing else matters. The human heart must worship something. Without grace, the human heart is either filled with self to the point of self-exaltation or it's filled with self to the point of depression. And either way, the Son of God on a cross looks like a weak and a pitiful solution, even if we'd never say so. My mom had a coworker who reacted very strongly to my mother's faith, or they had some kind of conversation about it. And the idea of the cross was grotesque and strange. It was a torture device. She said, I don't get you Christians and your like, connection to the torture device. And she it found it very strange. And she rejected it. That's one way to reject the cross. Others that I've shared the cross with have been offended by another side of it as an offense to themselves. Uh, I had a, co- a co-worker years back, and I got up my, um, my nerve to talk to them about faith. You know, I was, I was like, this is really important to me. I'm spending a lot of time with them. We were doing landscaping. It was just him and I over and over and over again. And I finally brought up my faith, and we ended up in a really in-depth conversation and got all the way to the, the gospel of Jesus and the death on a cross for your sins. And he looked at me and he said, look, I'm a military guy. I am pro, like, doing the right thing. I believe in God, but nobody's going to die for my sins. I mean, I haven't heard it as explicitly said since. I've heard it a thousand more times. But he had it crystallized. I will be taking care of my own sins. Others 
don't seem to see that it has anything to offer them. Um, It's what Flannery O'Connor said about redemption. When you don't realize the cost or what redemption demands, you can't love the Redeemer. You can't see the depths of what God has done in Christ. Watch in your life, in your own heart, the non-gracious person will think that they are easier to forgive or tolerate than other people are. The non-gracious person will think that they themselves are easier to tolerate or forgive than other people are. And do you know what that means? You don't see the depths. You don't see the caricature. You don't see the freak that you are. And nobody wants to consider themselves a freak, but what if the path to seeing that is redemption? So therefore, in the eyes of the world and the worldly in the church, the Christian is crucified. I think that's what Paul is saying here. They look weak. They may look like failures. They're admitting their sins. They're doing things like Paul who's saying, I'm the chief of sinners. Why would you say that? Why would you say, I am the freak? I am the worst. Like, why would you do that when you could not? Right? And you could say, I am actually very right, and my friends and I are very right, and if we were in charge, things would go way better than you people. That's what we normally do. Paul, it's almost like he had this thing where he was like, hey, I'm here um, writing the majority of the New Testament, and I am actually the worst disciple there is. That's how he said it. That's how it came in. Huh? And, and these Christians, they, they lean into forgiveness and mercy. They don't tout their strengths. They tout only what Jesus has done as their bragging right, as their claim. So why are you an apostle? What does Paul say? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. That's why. It's for his great mercy. That's why. So to the world and the worldly in the church, the Christian looks as weak as if he hangs on a cross. He or she hangs on a cross. You look like you're, you're just, you're admitting your sins. You don't have any, you're not, what do you have to offer? But the Christian who stands in grace who doesn't just know about the cross, but knows Jesus, who died for them on the cross, who, like Paul, has been transformed by radical grace into sonship and apostleship after being a brutal agitator. I mean, the heart that has seen the love of God in Christ, who has seen their sin and then understood that their sin was transferred onto Jesus as he bled and died on that cross, to them, the world is crucified. And what I mean by that is it, they mean, it means they look at the old ways, the boasting about being right, the glorying in their own successes, all of that, and they say, that was weak. That was a waste. That was getting me nowhere. That's what it means for, for the, us to be crucified to the world. We're, we look like we're put to shame in front of the world. But then the world is crucified to us. We look at those methods, the yelling and the screaming and the being right and the tweets, and we go, it's not ever going to work. It's weak. We can see that. 
That's the radical reversal. We go into seeing that the thing that looked weak is what's powerful, and the thing that looked powerful is weak. That's what it means for the world to be crucified to us and us to the world. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle of faith. And we see it's only because of grace and all the self-proving and all the self-castigating is powerless. All the depression and getting down on ourselves, it wasn't helping us. All of the boasting in ourselves, it wasn't helping us. What has helped is only the cross. And then if that's true, then what, what of circumcision, uncircumcision, vaccines, COVID, masks, net gators, conservatives, liberals, black lives matter, all lives matter. What of it? It's opinions. Go back over the last thousand years and look at all the other ones that have existed, all the other disagreements. What problem have they solved? The cross, though. has never been diminished. None of them ends up counting for anything. You, you can hold ideas. I'm not saying have zero thoughts, but put them in the right order. And how you know they're in the right order, how you know they're in the right order is when you're boasting. Your only hope, your only boast is in the cross. And then you're a new creation. And a new creation has, is captured by grace, comforted by his love, assured of his good and gracious will, washed of sins, motivated by gratitude. They have a whole new orientation to the world. They're not proving things anymore. They're not fighting anymore. Jesus has done everything for the person who is a new creation. And as we're becoming a new creation, we're moving further and further toward that security in Jesus. I think we're often tempted to believe that being a new creation means we're being, you know, we're all better or fixed or righteous. The Bible does not say that's what it means. It means you've been born into a new hope. It means you have a new set of eyes, that you see the cross where Jesus looked weak and you see the power of God for salvation. That you see humility and service that looks weak and like, where's that ever going to get you? And you start to see power and grace transfer into the hearts of others. It means you're like a child toward Jesus. You're trusting. You listen to him. You're humbled by him. Changing, yes, perfect, no. It means to see his grace and the power of the cross it means that when you struggle, which you will, that you come back to the cross and you, you just kneel before it and you thank him for it. Again and again and again. Therefore, the cross becomes a tool of discernment for the human heart. It's the third that Paul's given us in the book of Galatians. The last two weeks, we learned about the other two. The first is the fruit of the Spirit. You could put this on your fridge, by the way, if you want. Um, what are my actions saying about my love of grace? That's what the fruit of the Spirit's about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are responses of the heart to grace. 
when you look at them, it's not am I keeping the list where God loves me enough, it's am I living out of grace? Is grace informing my decisions? Your bank ledger, that's what I, I gave you last week, right? What, is, what does my money say I worship? It's a tool to look at your heart. And here, the cross. And I, am I okay with the world's assessment of me being weakness? and living as if the world is crucified to me? Will I accept that the only thing I can brag about is grace? Do you see what the cross means to you? That it was love that made him bleed and hang from a tree? That it was my sin, your sin that held him there until redemption was accomplished? Do you see how much your sin cost? Can you see the inner trajectory of your heart? It's this grotesque picture, call forward a need for his mercy. And if it does, then the table is set for you. The table is our weekly call to approach the cross. And you'll see when we bring the bread and wine out here, the symbolism of this. What do you bring to the table? nothing. We are given grace in the form of Christ's broken body and his blood shed to change the orientation of our hearts. Can you say the world has been crucified to me? I see no hope in asserting my goodness, even my boldness or my commitment. All I bring to the table is my need. And Jesus gives the cross and then his resurrected life and I have hope. For those who can say that, even with a mustard seed of faith, then come and receive his cross and his grace by faith.